So again, this afternoon, we are studying how Scripture reveals that our God is triune, and to guide us in this, we will also now read together Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which summarize the scriptural teachings for us. Lord's Day 8. So in Lord's Day 7, just to go back one moment, it talks about true faith and Christian must believe all that's promised us in the gospel uh, as summarized in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. And then it asks, what are these articles? And then follows the Apostles' Creed. So Lord say eight, how are these articles of the Apostles' Creed divided? Into three parts. The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. Third, about God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Thus far, the reading of our confession. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 11, our Lord Jesus Christ uh, proclaimed these words. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for, for such was your gracious will. And our Lord Jesus Christ is saying that God often hides the, the great truths of the gospel from those who are wise in their own eyes, and he reveals them to, uh, to those who are humble, accept them like little children. And that is certainly true when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity as well. Uh, Lord's Day 8 describes the Trinity like this. God has so revealed himself in his word that the three distinct persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the one true eternal God. See, the, the teaching of the Trinity, it, it flies in the face of human reasoning. And so over the centuries, uh, there are many, uh, many so-called great thinkers who have stumbled over this doctrine and refused to accept it. One example is actually, believe it or not, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States one of the main authors of the Declaration of Independence. And he said this, When we shall have done away with the incomprehensible jargon of the Trinitarian arithmetic, that three are one and one is three, and when we shall have unlearned everything which has been taught since Jesus' day and got back to the pure and simple doctrines he inculcated, we shall then be truly and worthily Jesus' disciples. I know that's a mouthful, but what Thomas Jefferson is saying in short is, the Trinity doesn't make sense. Let's just go back to the simple teachings of Jesus. So that was Thomas Jefferson. Uh, a similar thing can be said of one of history's most important philosophers named Immanuel Kant. He had this to say about the Trinity. 
The doctrine of the Trinity provides nothing, absolutely nothing of practical value, even if one claims to understand it, still less when one is convinced that that far surpasses our understanding. It costs a student nothing to accept that we adore three or ten persons in the divinity. Furthermore, this distinction offers absolutely no guidance for his conduct. So that was one of the the greatest, or so-called greatest, uh, philosophers of the entire Western world. So we have two great thinkers in world history stumbling over this doctrine of the Trinity. But remember Jesus' words. So often, God hides these things from the wise and learned and reveals them to little children, those who accept his word in faith. We don't accept this doctrine because we can figure it all out. No, we accept it with a childlike faith because this is what Scripture teaches. This is how God has revealed himself to us. So, as I preach you God's word this afternoon, I'll do so on the following theme and points. With childlike faith, we trust in the triune God for salvation. We'll see two things. First of all, God reveals himself as triune in Scripture. And secondly, Scripture reveals that this triune God is our Savior. Now, perhaps the best description of the Trinity is found in one of our creeds, uh, the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed sums up the teaching on the Trinity like this. Thus, the Father is God, the Son God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. And that, in short, is the doctrine of the Trinity. This is our God. Now, obviously, this teaching, it stretches the limits of our understanding. It is true we, we can't completely comprehend it. Now, to help people understand this doctrine, sometimes uh, people try to give analogies uh, that describe the Trinity. Sometimes you might hear someone say, you know, the Trinity is, is like a tree. You know, there are different parts to a tree, the roots, the trunk, and the branches, but there is only one tree. Actually, I remember when I was in elementary school, I heard a comparison saying that the Trinity is, is like an egg, which falls far short, but an egg has three parts, the eggshell, the egg weight, white, and the egg yolk, yet there is one egg. Now, while analogies like this might appear to be helpful, we have to realize they fall far short. The simple fact is there's nothing in all creation that compares with our triune God. Nothing. The Lord himself says in Isaiah 40, verse 25, to whom Will you compare me? And we sang together from Psalm 89, Who in their mighty host compares with you in splendor? God is completely unique. There's only one God. And there are three distinct persons who are all fully God within this one God. Nothing in all creation compares with the Lord. Perhaps that's also why men like Thomas Jefferson rejected this teaching. 
They couldn't wrap their minds around it. Because God is so utterly different than things, other things we see in this world. We have to ask ourselves, you know, why should we ex- expect God to be like anything in creation? He is far greater than anything in this world. He stands outside his creation. If God is bound by what we see in this created world, then he's not really God. You see, God is a different sort of being than, than me or, or you, and that's good. We don't, we don't need to understand completely the, uh, how the Trinity works, especially by giving faulty analogies. We can just accept it with a childlike faith. This is how God has revealed himself in his word. You know, when teaching children about the Trinity, for example, you don't need to worry that this might be a stumbling block to them. Remember, God often hides these things from the wise and learned, reveals them to little children. Instead, when, when teaching children about the Trinity, we can use it as, a, as a, yeah, a way of teaching them the wonder of God. The wonder of God can take it as an opportunity to teach our children how God is, how, how he is powerful and mighty and, and majestic. He's awesome. In fact, he's greater than anyone and anything else we can even possibly imagine. That's our God. And that's your God, little children as well. Triune God, greater than anything else in this world. Now, seeing how the Trinity surpasses all that we can imagine, well, we might wonder, how did the church ever come to this confession that God is triune if we can't completely understand it? It just seems beyond us. Well, the answer comes to us in one important statement, again, from the Athanasian Creed. There it says, just as we are compelled by Christian truth to acknowledge each person separately to be both God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to speak of three gods or lords. What's it saying? We confess the Trinity because we're compelled by the Bible to call each of these persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit God. And yet the same Bible makes clear there is only one God. That's how the Holy Spirit led the church to confess the truth that our God is triune. You see, Scripture, the Bible, it clearly teaches there is only one God. In fact, that's one of the central truths of the entire Bible. There's only one God. And one example is found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Israelites called it the Shema. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord taught the Israelites that He alone was God. There was no other God but Him, the Lord. Look also what we read from Isaiah 45. Yahweh proclaims that the Egyptians would come up to the Israelites saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other, no God Besides him, the Lord is the only God, one. 
And further on in the passage, he says again, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told us long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Right? That passage we read from Isaiah 45 it proclaims, without a doubt, there is only one God. That's a consistent message of the Bible. The Athanasian Creed is correct. We are forbidden by the Catholic religion to speak of three gods or lords. There's only one God. And yet Scripture, of course, also says more. In the New Testament, we quickly see that God has a son. And there's also someone called the Holy Spirit. And think about Jesus' baptism. There we read, or there we read, when Jesus Christ was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on Jesus. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All right, here we have three distinct persons. Son is obviously not the Spirit, since the Son was on earth when the Spirit descended on him. The Son is not the Father, because the Father was in heaven speaking about his Son. And the Spirit is not the Father, as a voice from heaven came after the Spirit descended on Jesus. So again, Scripture is teaching, here we have three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We cannot confuse them. Well, the next question is, what does Scripture say about the identity of these three persons? To quote the Athanasian Creed again, it, it says, We are compelled by Christian truth to acknowledge each of these persons separately to be both God and Lord. Right? When we study what the Bible says about each person, then we are compelled to confess that each person is God. Look at the person of the Holy Spirit. There's one example in the book of Acts that's very clear. The Spirit was poured out on the church in Acts 2. And a few chapters later in Acts 5, the this Holy Spirit is clearly identified. In this passage, Ananias and Sapphira lied about the money they were laying at the apostles' feet. And in response, Peter said to them, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why is that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When they lied to the Holy Spirit, they lied to God. That's one way Scripture compels us to acknowledge the Holy Spirit to be both God and Lord. And what about the Son? Well, there are many New Testament texts that reveal that He, too, is God. A great example is from Philippians 2, which we read. So in that passage, Paul exhorts his readers to have the mind of Christ and says Christ was in the form of God. That might sound he simply had the, the shape of God, that he looked somewhat like him. Paul says a few words later that he also took on the form of a servant. And that certainly doesn't mean that he only took on the shape of a servant or looked like a servant. 
No, Jesus Christ was and is the very essence of a servant. He took on the form of a servant. He was the very essence of a servant. That's what Jesus was. It's the very meaning of what it means to be a servant. Christ showed that supremely by going to the cross to pay for our sins. That's how much he was willing to serve. So the word form here means that Jesus had the true nature of something. He had the true nature of a servant. He had the true nature of God and still does. This is affirmed when the Holy Spirit says through Paul, Christ did not not count equality with God, something to be grasped, or something to be exploited for his own personal gain. Christ had equality with God. Not lower in any respect, but had equality. The Son, together with the Father, is infinite, eternal, and almighty. Philippians 2 says he has equality with him. And if that were not enough, then Philippians 2 has more to say. The Spirit through Paul says that because of his obedience, listen to what it says, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there we have that language in Philippians 2, but that language already came earlier in the Old Testament. We had that same language in our reading from Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, again, shows that God will not share his glory with another God. Right? God alone, the Lord alone is God, and so he says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn... For my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance or confess to God. Notice the similarity to Philippians 2. Words ascribed to the Son. Right? That word of God in Isaiah 45 is fulfilled in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow before Jesus Christ. And God has done what he will not do with idols and false gods. He shared his glory with his son because his son is true God. Paul, at the end of our reading from Philippians 2, quotes an Old Testament text that emphasizes there is one God. And yet he can apply that text to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is truly God. That's how the church arrived at the doctrine of the Trinity. We're compelled by the Bible to confess there is only one God, but at the same time we're compelled to acknowledge Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each to be fully God. That brings us to our next point. So we confess with childlike faith that we worship one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we confess it with childlike faith. This is what God is revealing himself, uh, how he's revealing himself. Yet even though this is true, perhaps this teaching can still make us uneasy. You know, maybe it leaves you with the feeling that God must just be 
utterly incomprehensible. He's shrouded in complete mystery. I mean, I can't understand the Trinity. Um, how can I know anything about God? You know, if he's so beyond our ability to comprehend, and how could I have a relationship with him? Perhaps you get the sense, the sense the same thing. If you were to read the Athanasian Creed uh, with all the technical language it has, precise language, you might think, is that all there is to know about the Trinity? Right? Just all this technical language. What does it help us to know this about God? Or perhaps even better, how does the knowledge of the Trinity help us to love God more and glorify Him more and stand in awe of Him more? Remember what I mentioned in the introduction about Immanuel Kant. He said, the doctrine of the Trinity, does, it cannot guide our conduct at all. It doesn't give any practical value to our lives. Is that true? Well, I would say no. No, to answer this, we should see that Scripture describes different ways that God is triune, right? Scripture simply states the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all divine. And Scripture also shows that these persons are all God through their works. And it's the works of these persons that we see so clearly that they are God. And notice how the Catechism focuses on the works of the Trinity. Or say, the Catechism asks how the articles of the Apostles' Creed are divided into three parts. The first about God the Father and our creation, the work of God. Second about God the Son and our redemption, the work of God to save us. Third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification, the work of God to renew us. Think about the work of of Jesus Christ, God the Son. How does the work of the Son reveal to us that He is God? Well, who would deny that it is Jesus Christ Himself who saves us from our sins? That was what was proclaimed about Him when He was born. You shall call His name Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves, for He will save His people from their sins. Jesus Christ will. And if Christ is the one who saves us from our sins, then surely it must mean that He is God. If there's one thing that the Bible makes clear, it's that God is our Savior. Salvation is from the Lord, our God. Think again of Isaiah 45. There it says, Israel is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. You know, the people who carry about their wooden, wooden idols keep on praying to a God that cannot save. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, there are righteousness and strength. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Right there we see language that God, the Lord, is the Savior of His people. And when it says that you shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins, it does not mean that someone other than God is our Savior. It means that Jesus Christ 
is God, the God who saves. Jesus, Yahweh saves. He will save his people from their sins. Right? God being our Savior is supremely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? What would be the situation if God's Son, Jesus Christ, were not God? We would be saved by a person who is not God, and that simply cannot be. Listen to Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? The Son of God, fully God, coming to this earth to save his people from death, from hell, from their sins. And so all glory goes to God for salvation. Also, when we acknowledge Jesus Christ to be our Savior, because he is God. And Philippians 2 shows us also, as one commentator put it so well, part of the point of Philippians 2, indeed, is a point not so much about Jesus as it is about God himself. You see, the cross is not something that God does unwillingly or only because he can't think of a better way to save us. At the heart of Philippians 2 is the news that the one true God consists through and through of self-giving love, and we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. This is your God on display, the God who serves, the God who saves the God who humbled himself, taking your human nature to save you from your sins. This is your God. He came to save us. God is love, proclaims 1 John 4, verse 8. We see that love perfectly in Jesus Christ, God's Son, the perfect reflection and imprint of God's nature. So Jesus works. His works to save us shows us again that he is God and he shows us what God is like. Right? You see, understanding that God is triune is not simply so that we can get our theological ducks in a row. No, when we see that Jesus Christ is God, then we see what our God is truly like. A self-giving, utterly loving God who came to save us. And so it results in praise to God. And that knowledge gained from the doctrine of the Trinity is also very practical. Right? Immanuel Kant, that philosopher, he was wrong. He said, this teaching offered no practical value and does not guide our conduct in the least. But he's badly mistaken. Right? Think again of Philippians 2. The apostle by the Holy Spirit is saying, this is your God on display. Jesus Christ did not count equality with God something to be exploited for his own gain. Humbled himself, going to the cross to save sinners. Right? This is our God. And so, it says... It's, it's meant to lead our lives. Look at the actions of the Son of God in Philippians 2. Right, Paul says, be of the same mind of Christ. 
this is what your God has done for you. And put on that same attitude yourselves. He did not take his privileged position as something to be exploited for his own gain. He became a servant. Your God became your servant. Do you want to be like God? And look at this example. Look at this example from Philippians 2. Follow it. Serve other people in love. Serve one another in love. Take on the attitude of Christ, says Paul. Be like God by giving of yourself to others. Not claiming your rights as something to be exploited for your own personal gain. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Look not only to your own interests, also the interests of others. Be like God. So be like Jesus Christ, God's Son. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's word by singing hymn 23, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4.